Hello, my name is Liki Gay and welcome to this podcast produced by the International Monetary Fund. Why are some countries rich and others poor? Over the years, experts have pointed to a range of factors they've considered crucial, from the relative freedom of markets, through the size of the population, to geography. If you've read the book review section in June's issue of Finance and Development magazine, you'll know that James Robinson, co-author of the newly published Why Nations Fail, has his own ideas. He believes the wealth of a country is most closely tied to how far the average person is able to share in its overall economic growth. He calls that inclusive growth. But beware, he warns, there is always a tendency in any society for a small group of people or oligarchy to try and concentrate power and wealth in its hands. Perhaps that's what the Occupy movement was protesting against? But more on that later. In this interview, Robinson elaborated on his theory of economic development. To have economic success, you need a particular sort of configuration of institutions in society, economic institutions and political institutions that sort of back them up and underpin them. What you need in some sense in terms of the economy is a structure of economic institutions which can harness the talents and skills and ideas of, of its people. And we call that inclusive because you know, it has to include everybody in allowing people to have property rights and economic opportunities and take advantage of their skills and talents and open business and get an education. But behind that you need to have a set of political institutions which distributes power broadly in society. But there's always incentives to oligarchize power and for some group of people to try to capture power or take over power. And a lot of people are sort of concerned that this big increase in economic inequality in the United States is, signifies a sort of oligarchization of the society. If the increase in inequality in the US is actually a signal of America's becoming an oligarchy, that is to say a country run by a small self-selecting group of people, then would you say the Occupy movement is a protest against this? We have a lot of examples historically of how there have been challenges to the, to the inclusive nature of US political institutions. And so we try to put Occupy Wall Street into that same sort of tradition of, of objecting and fighting back. That's something which is very healthy about the society and it, it's very good for the long-run health, economic health and political health of the, the US. You were talking in just now about the previous social movements that you were describing in the book and you were saying that Occupy Wall Street can actually get inspiration from them. I want to know what, how did they succeed in achieving what they struggled to do? One lesson for Occupy Wall Street is that on their webpage, you know, and I mean, I, I, I had a, a former PhD student of mine who's a professor at Columbia University is actually very involved with Occupy Wall Street, so he's my main, my main source of information about this. They project this antipathy towards, you know, politicians and political parties and, you know, and we don't want anything to do with them. And perhaps one can sympathize with, you know, with some of that, with some of that sentiment, but I think the reality is, is that if they want to have an impact, they need to build bridges to political parties and politicians who are sympathetic with their agenda. And, you know, we also try to give this example of the French students movement from 1968, which, you know, was incredibly successful at sort of mobilizing and grabbing everybody's attention, but was very bad at building a bigger coalition to get what it really wanted. It seems you're very pessimistic about the direction the United States is taking. So 
is the country on the path of becoming one of these nations who fails, or are you a little bit more hopeful? No, I'm not pessimistic about uh, the United States. I mean, I, I'm optimistic, and you know, one of the reasons to be optimistic is that you know, in, in the past, the U.S. system has been very robust. It's what we this, what we describe this as a kind of virtuous circle, which is that that once you create kind of inclusive institutions, it creates kind of positive feedback mechanisms which stop it stop it going off the rails, and that's kind of our interpretation of Occupy Wall Street. You know, it's part of this reaction by U.S. society to this potential oligarchization. I, I tend to work in very dysfunctional places. You know, I'm on sabbatical in Colombia and South America, and I work a lot in sub-Saharan Africa, and I've been doing this research in Haiti. And so, you know, when you spend some time in Colombia, in rural Colombia or in Sierra Leone or the Congo, uh, then you, you really begin to appreciate the functionality of U.S. institutions. Uh, so I, I, <laughs> I think history does create scope for optimism about the resilience of inclusive institutions in the U.S. I want to move on um, a little bit to your book, Why Nation Fails, the one you co-wrote with uh, your current co-author, Darren Asimoglu. In that book, you argue that the wealth of a nation is correlated to the degree of which the average person shares in the overall growth. Do you have examples of countries that have actually successfully done so and as such have grown? I can give you a sort of controversial example, you know, which everyone usually thinks is sort of against us, which is China. People always say, and this is a sort of view I find very mysterious, that Chinese economic growth in the last 30 years has been due to the sort of the genius of the Communist Party. But the reality of Chinese economic growth since the late 1970s is that the, the economy in China started growing when the Communist Party started disentangling itself from every aspect of people's lives. So the first thing they did was they introduced sort of incentives and into agriculture and they started allowing people to basically do what they want instead of planning everything and you know and it was enormously successful in terms of productivity you know there was a boom in rural productivity and so it's the kind of retreat to the communist party and this allowing people to use their talents and skills and start businesses and live where they want and take the job they want that's what's generated economic growth in china so that's a you know that's a controversial example why is it a controversial example because people often think that the chinese case doesn't fit with our view of the world and the beijing consensus has been very successful in terms of getting the chinese economy moving but ultimately it's uh, unsustainable in the 1960s and 1970s Everybody thought that the Soviet Union was a sort of poster child for you know, economic growth. When I was an undergraduate at the London School of Economics in the early 1980s, we were still being taught that if you wanted to have rapid economic growth, you had to have Soviet-style central planning. Every economics textbook was full of pictures of the Soviet Union's income overtaking the United States. Now everyone sort of laughs you know, when they say that, but the, the Soviet experience has lots of things in common with the Chinese experience. And one of the things it has in common is that it's it was completely unsustainable, but everyone's forgotten about uh, that, so we want to remind them. One thing that I found very interesting in your thesis, and I think it has sort of tremendous implication for development policies, because development policies are often thought as giving foreign aid and, you know, doing health changes and such, so on and so forth. But what you're effectively saying is by having some deep economic and political changes that, that the country may actually be able to drive its economic growth. Yeah. So where does that leave you know, present development policies? Do you think we should have a radical change from what we're doing now? Yeah, I mean, we, we emphasize much more the political. I think that the, the economic institutions are crucial for sort of generating economic growth and development, but it's the politics that kind of underpins particular sets of institutions. And one way of thinking about that is just that why so many attempts by international institutions and states to kind of reform 
policies or institutions have been unsuccessful. Take the Washington Consensus, this whole so-called Washington Consensus, since we're sitting here in the Institute for International Economics, where the Washington Consensus was actually formulated by John Williamson, if I remember correctly. You know, so the Washington Consensus was implemented in Latin America in the 1990s. So some people take the view, look, they tried this, it didn't work. So these policies just weren't the right view. But our view is completely different. Our view is that lots of these policies in the Washington Consensus were actually eminently sensible policies. It's just that the politics didn't change. So if you don't change the politics, then you can't change the economy. And that was James Robinson, co-author with Darren Asimoglu of the recently published why Nations Fail, with his thoughts on the key to economic development. And if you want to read a review of the book, look in the June issue of Finance and Development magazine, available on www.imf.org.